I'm Erica Ducey. And I'm Felicity Carter. And you're listening to The Business of Drinks, a podcast dedicated to helping drinks businesses grow and thrive. Whether you're in wine, beer, or spirits, or the non-alcoholic drink space, in functional beverages or seltzers and sodas, we've got you covered. We take a holistic approach to drinks, looking at new business opportunities and the products and categories that get customers excited. This season, we're doing a deep dive on millennial and Gen Z audiences and their drinking behaviors. We even commissioned our own research on the topic and we'll be talking with experts all season long. Thanks for joining us and let's dive in. Hello, listeners. I'm Erica Ducey. And I'm Felicity Carter. And here we are at episode four in our quest to understand where have all the young drinkers gone? So far, we've talked about why people give up alcohol, how to make satisfying drinks without alcohol, and some of the biggest market opportunities in the low and no space. And of course, we launched our own in-depth report on what is driving the drinking behaviors of millennials and Gen Zs in the U.S. And today, we are meeting a rock star in the world of non-alcoholic beverages, Heidi Dillon, the CEO of Distill Ventures. That's the drinks accelerator that we met in season one. It's backed by the multinational drinks conglomerate Diageo. And if you're unfamiliar with a drinks accelerator, here's basically how it works. So Distill Ventures invests in a brand and they acquire a stake in the business. And along with capital, the company also invests the resources and expertise of its team to help with product development, operations, marketing, sales support, et cetera, whatever it is that a brand needs to grow. And, you know, the brand may eventually be acquired by Diageo, but that's just one of many outcomes. So in the past 10 years, Distill Ventures has invested around $300 million mm. in 35 startups, and just a handful of those went on to become acquired. And Heidi has a really interesting background in disrupting CPG categories and a particular emphasis on wellness. So she helped launch Luna Bars and uh, Felicity in Europe, they may not have these, but these are... The- <laughs> Wait, no, no, I, I tell me about them. So these are the female focused power bar sort of products that are popular in the US. It's a division of Cliff Bar, which is an, a, a really big uh, power bar company. And she also worked at Starbucks on the development of a functional foods accelerator there and several health and sustainability initiatives. Mm-hmm. Um, so she joined Distill Ventures North America in 2018 to lead the creation of their first non-alcoholic drinks practice. And that, you know, it was the first one globally, as far as I know. Um, And she recently also created Distill Ventures Pre-Accelerator. And this is an early stage funding initiative designed to support entrepreneurs from underrepresented backgrounds. So yeah, so she is a badass. I mean. Yeah, absolutely. Team Heidi. We are Team Heidi. What more can I say? So so Felicity, tell me, uh, what surprise you most in talking with her? Surprised me. Well, I wasn't so much surprised as I was downright shocked when she said that gin and tonic wasn't a big thing in the US. I had no idea because if I'm not drinking wine, my go-to is gin and tonic. And I mean, I'd heard everybody in the States talking a lot about tequila these past few years, but I didn't think any of you actually meant it. I thought <laughs> tequila was what you were all drinking when you couldn't get hold of a good gin. So that was a shock. But the other thing she said that really stood out to me was how fast this sector of the beverage world is evolving and how it intersects with other trends like new food methods and vegetarianism. And also that the no and low alk sector isn't about substitutes anymore, but it's about creating drinks that are exciting as drinks in their own Right. Exactly. And, you know, I was also really struck uh, by what she said about the role of culture, flavor and authenticity in the non-alc space. So, you know, these storytelling trajectories that have worked so well for wine are finally being adopted into other CPG categories. Um, So, I mean, here's how I think about it. So there's all these macro brands out there, whether it's like the Budweiser's or, you know, the big vodka brands. And I think in many areas, they're starting to wane. So my my sense is really that generic is out and specific is in. Yeah. And people, yeah, and I think people want that storytelling and authenticity. So, you know, just take something like a Coke or a Sprite, right? Super generic American product, and they're on top now. But is this what millennial and Gen Z audiences want? 
I don't know. I mean, after looking at the data and talking to Heidi and a lot of our other experts this season, I say no. I think younger drinkers are looking for products uh, like one of my new favorites, actually, Sanzo Seltzer, which I know you don't have uh, in Europe. No, don't have this one either. Yeah. But this is billed as the first Asian-inspired sparkling water made with real fruit and no added sugar. Um, these are delicious seltzers. They're available all around the U.S. They have uh, like flavors like calamansi lime and yuzu and lychee. And this brand is blowing up across the U.S. Um, so, and it, and it has one of these specific authentic stories that we're talking about. So the founder, Sandro Rocco, he is a Filipino-American born just across the river here from me in Queens. And he was walking through a supermarket in Manhattan's Koreatown and realized that all of the Asian drinks were sweet, lots of sugar. And he thought, huh, why isn't there a sparkling water with Asian flavors, but no sugar? Uh, so he went out and made it. And, and, you know, I think that's really brilliant. And that's what people want these days. You know, they want a unique perspective. They want a fresh point of view. And Sanzo has a super engaged community on social media. And it's, it's really that rabid fan base that is something investors are looking for these days. Um, and to prove it, last year he raised a $10 million Series A round wow. to fund his nationwide expansion. You know, so that to me is a brand of the future. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that's coming out loud and clear from everybody we speak to is that what's going on is an expansion of the drinks market, not a pulling back. And I think one of the interesting things is what you've just touched on, which is the the role of ingredients like fruit. So these aren't artificial ingredients anymore. They're, uh, you know, they're fresh fruits and they're fresh things which are being used. And I'm sure if we dove into it, that must have something to do with new technological ability to preserve, you know, high quality ingredients. Anyway, speaking about new things, Heidi has a lot of interesting things to say about how demographic changes are impacting the drinks market. And so what kind of drinks development we're going to need in the future. Uh, so it's a very exciting area with a lot of opportunity for craftspeople and entrepreneurs and growers. And it, it's a it's a really positive development. Yeah. And for existing drinks producers who maybe need a push, don't think of non-alc as competition. It's a growth opportunity. So let's dive in and let Heidi explain how. And now, a word from our sponsor, ExcelPay. At the Business of Drinks, we talk about building successful brands. But there's one crucial element that many overlook, the e-commerce experience. It's true. I've landed on so many terrible BevAlk sites with broken links and 20-step checkouts. And don't forget about alcohol sales compliance. Navigating the three-tier system can be daunting, but it's essential to ensure your operations run smoothly and are legally compliant. Enter ExcelPay. From a one-tap compliant checkout to comprehensive sales data, ExcelPay has you covered and can make your existing site a storefront. Visit excelpay.io forward slash BOD to get an exclusive 10% off your account. That's A-C-C-E-L-P-A-Y dot I-O forward slash B-O-D. Heidi, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great to be with you today. So I want to lead off with a question. I was just reading the fantastic uh, profile of you in the New York Times, and it starts off by saying on any given weeknight, you might find Heidi Dillon hopping around Manhattan or San Francisco ducking into bars. Is, is this something that you still do? And how often do you do it and why? So I work from a home environment and work on in the coast in California. However, I am out in the world constantly for work. So I get to travel to some of the most amazing cities in Europe and in North America. And that's always something I'm doing when I'm out and about. When I'm in my hometown, I also do it, but I tend to know exactly what's going on in the food and drink scene here. Uh, so it is, you know, I'd say one of the biggest observations I'm always trying to look for is what's happening on menus with non-alc. How much is this progressing? Where are we seeing, you know, what's popping in different cities? So that's probably my, I've always been doing that, but that's my current passion point because we just, you know, the numbers are showing that this is just really starting to explode 
But seeing what's actually happening in the market, I think, is a real telltale sign. So, I mean, I'm amazed by how sophisticated these cocktails have become. I was just at Hotel Chelsea in Manhattan last night, and this cocktail that I served, it was a snap pea gimlet, which had non-alk gin and snap pea puree, macadamia nut milk, which sounds weird, but a curry leaf. And that maybe sounds like the strangest combination of things, but let me tell you that this was fantastic. Fantastic. So delicious. So I think that, you know, I've, I've been so, so impressed by the sophistication of these cocktails that now really parallels those of the alcoholic realm in many cases. Yeah. So your background is in health and wellness uh, marketing and branding. But you've now moved into an area which has typically been about indulgence and hedonism. What are you finding in the known low space, which is a surprise to you? Or what do you think that your background can bring to this space? Great observation. Look, I think that when I came into this role, I honestly didn't connect the dots the way that you just did. For me, it was this spiking of consumer interest, that something was really shifting here. And sort of throughout the trajectory of my career, I've sort of had these spots kind of transforming spaces or industries, whether it was, you know, more in energy bars or coffee or greens juice, snacking, but always driven by the consumer. And I think when this role came to me, there was sort of this spot that was starting to happen with Seedlip. And that was really driven by a consumer shift. So for me, I took that as how do I take everything I've done from wellness lifestyle driven by the consumer and bring it into this space and borrow some of that work and energy and all of the time that I'd spent in that to bring it into an industry that hadn't ever really looked at it that way. So to me, maybe naivete was the best part of this whole world because I didn't actually have that sense that that's what I was getting into. It was more, how can I take all of this work that I've done and bring it into a space and help to transform something that the consumer is really asking for? And so you were really uh, early into the no and low uh, ALK space with Seedlip. And Seedlip played such a pivotal role in kicking off the no ALK spirits movement. And you personally played an important role in driving its growth in the U.S. So can you talk about that and about its impact and how things have changed uh, since Seedlip was introduced? Yeah, absolutely. So Seedlip really became a gateway, clearly had started making a lot of progress in Europe and even around the world, you know, world's best bars, Michelin star restaurants making an impact at this very elevated level. And I think it provided this opening up and possibility and curiosity for Americans, right? A couple things happened, though, you know, if you look at Seedlip was looking a lot at the gin and tonic occasion to start, like, like what anchor could you begin in? That's just not as prevalent in the U.S. Gin and tonic is not as big of a cocktail as it is, say, in the U.K. So when when we looked at, well, how can this more aptly serve American taste buds? What type of serve? That's where Seedlip Grove was introduced. So citrus being number one flavor in the U.S. and really developing what was that core serve to be with soda instead of tonic. Again, Americans drink sparkling water and club soda at rampant rates, as you know, um, by the likes of many, many sparkling water brands. But that just translated better. So again, it was how could we take something and introduce it to the American market to make a bit more sense. So that I think that was kind of some of the early pivots. But then also, how did you pair it with food? What was the on-premise connect? How, you know, what were trade and bartender drivers, et cetera? So I think those were a couple things. Seedlip really was in that crafted on-trade appeal mixology space. So we had Seedlip going on one side. And then this was really an inspiration for innovation. So during that time, we had a bursary program, which more like a scholarship program that we were working on of just what's possible? So we asked founders and developers to come to us and work on a program that we could help with liquid development. How could we work on preservation, flavor, curiosity, kind of encouraging that category to grow, really being all about education. Then you get into you know some other players that started translating, okay, well, if, if Americans may need something that's a little bit more direct, let's say like a one-to-one spirits replacement, simple, easy to educate while well, there enters ritual, which we can get into later. But that's a good example of sort of how some gates began to open for brands and founders to connect with the consumer here. 
Can I just jump in? You've said something I thought was really interesting. Am I right that you, you said that this was a movement that started in Europe? It really did, yes. Yeah. So Seedlip was founded um, in the UK, actually. So, and look, not surprisingly, right, the spirits industry has so much depth, history, richness, really on the European continent. And I think that uh, that ability to sort of unlock something happened there first with Seedlip because of the, oh, well, well, that asking that question, what if, what if, right? So really did, yeah, Seedlip did start in the UK and then, you know, now the floodgates have opened in the US and the market here has become really significant. And, you know, so we talk so much on this podcast about business growth opportunities in the drink space. And, you know, with your viewpoint as really having the, you know, the kind of support of a big player uh, like Diageo and all of the sort of groundbreaking brands that it has brought to the forefront from Guinness 0.0 Tangeray, you know, non-alk, Gordon's non-alk. Uh, you know, I just was reading about Captain Morgan's spiced gold coming to the forefront. You know, there's there's so much happening in the space and I'm wondering you know, what are some of those brands or companies that you are seeing in this space that are showing the strongest sort of growth potential? Is it really more that like sort of one-on-one -on -one analog or is it more sort of innovative, unusual expressions? Let's talk about ritual a little bit. It's kind of a bit of a case study here, right? So, you know, how I started to say this, bringing from this one-to-one -one direct spirits replacement, a simple sort of translation, you know, use this the same way that you would use spirits directly in your cocktail. I think the other thing too, is that the, in the US, the, we have a bit of a shift of on-premise versus off-premise. Off-premise is much larger here, right? 80-20 versus Europe, depending on the country, more of a 50-50. So showing up where consumers shop in a place that made sense with a really clear just this is how you, easy to explain, identify, know when and how to use it. That's really, I think, what has sort of cracked open this space. And Ritual has grown to be the number one in the category from a volume and growth perspective. Now, in order to do that, the awareness is critical. This, um, we're really creating a category here and education is that driver, whether you're with the consumer, the distributor, the bartender, the buyer at the store, all of these things. So, having that level of education and knowledge across this is really critical and then being available. Now to your point of kind of what's next, I think that has been the unlock and that's where someone like Ritual can help really be the driver of education, right? Recruiting folks into the category. Now with that, a lot of the levers are around, you know, prioritization of health and wellness. The American consumer, that that's a huge unlock for the no and low category. So as you look at how consumers start to look at the category where there's almost some natural segmentation happening within that. So you have the one-to-one -one spirits replacement. Then I think you've got brands that are taking characteristics from the spirits industry, distillation, fermentation, and bringing those into non-alk. So whether it's sense of place, the way something is developed, that's, you know, that's a big area. So highlighting more of process and techniques that are used. Then I think you get into more like dark spirits alternatives, you know, you mentioned rum. And so some different occasions that match those. Then I think there's this really nice blending of no and low that's falling into aperitifs and digestives. And again, I don't think consumers call it that. It's just the time and way in which they're enjoying these drinks. So it's really all occasion driven. And we see that across uh, non-alk. You know, then there's also things like RTD and functional. So you're, just, you're seeing some really interesting spaces start to appear on shelves and on menus, et cetera, and in consumer homes. So I just want to pick up on something again that you just said there about the use the word fermentation. How much of what's happening is the intersection of what's happening in gastronomy as well with all the experimentation like fermented foods and stuff? Or is this a category that is existing by itself and people are simply looking for analogs? It started with people for looking for substitutes for alcohol. I think it's both. Actually, we, we see a lot of flavor development driven also in parallel with what's happening in food. So whether it's, you know, propensity for uh, spice or fermentation or, you know, different things that you see developing more and more on menus crossing of different uh, cultural cuisines, those are 
all sort of the impetus of a lot of creation, because I think probably more than a lot of other categories, non-alc does sit very nicely with food. So you often see folks that are having a background in either bartending, culinary chef that are bringing those attributes into this realm because we want to have amazing drinks with our food. And spirits doesn't traditionally often pair with food. It's usually wine, especially with an American consumer, right? So this is, non-alc is creating a really interesting entry point to have really interesting drinks alongside food. So it actually sounds like what started as a category of substituting the alcohol has actually turned into an entirely new and innovative space. I think that you're right. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, interesting. I mean, it feels so innovative, you know, like I think, uh, you know, I always go back to that tapache example, which is like that fermented drink that you can get in um, in Mexico. But now there's shelf stable, non-alcoholic tapache, you know, blowing up in 500 some, you know, Whole Foods and in like my local small, tiny grocery store. Um, so it's it's it is almost like this CPG category that was, you know, soft drinks previously. Right now that has exploded into the fermentation maker, uh, creative, innovative space in a way that really is fresh and new. I would, yeah, I'd absolutely agree with you. And I think, you know, one thing that's interesting is you've got 94% of folks that are buying non-alc also buy spirit. So much of this is about moderation, occasion, time, place, space. It's not so much of a, oh, I don't drink, so I'm in this space. Now, not to say that that's absolutely not the case, because you do have Gen Z will make a big impact on non-alc because of lower drinking and connecting into the non-alc industry in different ways. But there is a uh, a really high crossover of folks who that in in one evening in one sitting will go between you know no and low drinks. Totally, that was me last night, and and I do want to pick up on what you just said, which was you know that Nielsen IQ stat that ninety four percent of non alc buyers also purchase alcoholic products, and this was on e commerce channel, hugely hugely important, and here is why. Because on a household perspective, those households that buy non-alc products are spending more on average per year on alcohol products than houses that buy alcohol products only. Like that blew my mind. Like, why do you think that is? Yeah, there is some, there is some fantastic, I'm so glad to hear that you uh, got to see that report that came out because there is some just fantastic stuff in there, you know, of the way in which, you know... You, you have the stats already, but the percentage of people who are moderating and drinking both across the same occasion is just really interesting. You know, you've got 53% are only going in and drinking a non-alcoholic drink. 47% are doing both in one occasion. So really interesting, um, really interesting data there. Can you dive in deeper into who are the consumers who are doing this? What what do we know about them? Absolutely. So look, I think there's there's a few different ways to slice it. I think it depends a little if you're looking at on-prem versus off versus, you know, grocery data, et cetera. But Generally speaking, I think the growth will be driven from younger generations, Gen Z. Right now in this current moment, you know, look, it's folks that the highest indices are kind of in the, you know, late 30s to early 50s, driven by female consumers. Um, but again, that if you also look across different wellness and lifestyle categories, it's a match to that, which would make perfect sense because that's where you've got more disposable income and a consumer who's participating in outlets and across different industries that are falling in kind of this wellness and lifestyle space. So that's, I think, where you have a larger dollar pool of access and awareness is a bit higher, frequency of purchase is a bit higher. But if you look across data, it's actually pretty even across you know the different stages and ages. It's really interesting to see what's evolving. Okay, let me ask the next question. So how does this overlap with other movements like, say, the move towards vegetarianism or veganism, or isn't there any overlap? Some of my founders, we talk about this regularly, that the percent, or the way that these industries can kind of grow. I mean, if you look at the dairy alternatives market, it's a $25 billion market, Like, right? You know, look at where this was 10, 15 years ago. 
beginnings of soy and almond. And now you go into any coffee shop and you have 17 options of how you want your coffee built, right? Look at the, uh, you know, the meat alternative or meat free, same. That's about, you know, a $13 billion market. That's been developed a little bit more recently. So, but again, same growth curves that you see with dairy. So dairy will grow, you know, maybe 20, 25%. A lot of this data is online, but 20 to 25% over the coming years, whereas meat-free is going to be more in the 40s or 50s. But again, it's just sort of time. If you look at the non-alk market, it's estimated right now to be 11 billion growing at 25% for the next several years. So the the data really matches of how those industries have grown and the breadth of product availability and how consumers shop. And if if you actually look at cart level data, the same person who has beyond meat or someone also has ground turkey or ground beef in their cart. The same person who's buying almond milk also has regular cheese in their cart. And it's the same thing with spirits. Same, you just mentioned this, the same person who is also shopping for different spirits also is buying non-alk. And I think it's, what's really interesting is the, the visits, the way they are planned Non-alk is actually on the list. Spirits tends to be a bit more impulsive, but non-alk has about you know twenty five percent higher chance than regular spirits of actually showing up on a grocery list of like I'm going to make sure I buy that today. I'm just thinking about what the proliferation of coffees and milks has done to baristas, and and as you're talking, I'm just imagining that the amount of study that Sommeliers has to do is just gone like this, you know? Exactly. Well, again, it goes back to. It goes back to education, and I can almost pull a little bit from my time at Starbucks. The le- the way in which we would kind of decode making all of these beverages and what you know every program that was delivered was through really simple anecdotal training of like how you build the drink. One, two, three. This is why the consumer wants it. This is why the seasonal. And it's going to, in fact, be quite similar here of developing those tools and how can the, the the knowledge from the barista translate when you've got a lot of these different um, components available to build your drinks. So let's move on to uh, to talking a little bit about Distill Ventures specifically. So tell us when Distill Ventures is considering investing in a product, what are some of those, those key considerations? Uh, what are you really thinking about in terms of what the product looks like, what the founding team looks like, what the sort of flavor and and sort of, um, you know, product looks like overall, you know, what are those considerations? I almost want to take a step back from there because it's not just that, right? And you sort of alluded to this. We're looking at the the founder, the vision that they have, the product, but let me break that down a little bit. So very first is, is there an opportunity with the consumer? Is there a vision to connect with a new consumer space in which they, yes, it's about the product, but it's really about bringing this brand to life and who are the people behind it. So really, like, is there that vision that's clear around what impact the brand can have with the consumer over time? Then absolutely product. When, where, how do I drink it? Why do I drink it? So occasion, serve, flavor, absolutely. Uh, Then, you know, we're looking at things of where does it fall, uh, you know, kind of in, across premiumization? Uh, Is it category creating or breakthrough within a category? So lots of different levers, but it's so much about founding team vision, product, and the consumer that that ultimately connects to. So in our last season, we had a few conversations with people who were working with incubators or investment. And one of the things they told us, which was interesting, was about the role of flavor. Some of them told us that flavor isn't nearly as important as many producers believe it is, and that there are other attributes that are as important or more important, such as do they have a good sales strategy? Uh, Is the IP novel um, trustworthy founders? Can, Can you speak to that? What's your experience? All of those things absolutely are the foundations for a successful business. However, I mean, over, I mean, multiple data points across the board and all the work that we do, flavor is number one. Consumers tell us over and over again, if that doesn't meet their expectations, they're not going to come back. So if you miss that opportunity, that first time, look, we're already putting so much energy into educating the consumer, connecting the dots that this is available. And however, if that first experience doesn't drive a repeat, then that consumer may never come back. So, and their experience with flavor is really number one. So look, when we look at that, there's always a a 
so much about being in drinks is a constant evolution as well. So you may start somewhere with your product recipe, the way you're doing it, and it's constant tweaking based on what you're learning from the marketplace. But I think that flavor is really, really critical. And we do have a lot of data that points. So that's the number one thing consumers are looking for. Like, let me enjoy this experience, right? Yeah. And you mentioned the commercial strategy. So uh, I'm curious to know, you know, obviously it's got to be much easier to ship those non-alcoholic products. But beyond that, how does the go-to-market strategy and the the commercial strategy differ for these non-alc products? So you do have some basics, like you said, that there is Ditas, especially in the U.S., because Europe D2C and e-com works differently than here. But just the fact that we can leverage Amazon, you know, leverage the world of e-commerce brands can connect directly with consumers. That's huge. That's such a great way that you can build trial, bring folks into your community. This, you know, we often say this is all about building a community. How do you get folks into your orbit and how do those folks become influencers and evangelists for you because they love your product, right? So absolutely D2C and e-com is a huge uh, different space, particularly in the U.S., correct? Because you don't have to go through the three-tier system with that. Um, and look, it's a it's definitely a mix over the course of the time I've had, you know, coming from more traditional natural organic food and beverage, you know, we, we tested a lot at first to say, maybe this does go through a grocery distributor. Maybe there is a different way to do this. And I think what, you know, so there's a few different things. If you're going and look, Americans are going to go, well, really, I mean, globally are going to go shop for this first in liquor, then grocery, right? So you have to appear in those places in order to get on the shelf in the first place. You have to be connecting with the buyer that is overseeing those sections. So typically the way most retail is set up is that those buyers are also buying beer, wine, and spirits, depending on which. So so therefore they are working with the distributors that also deliver those products. So I think there's, again, it, it's a bit of a mix, but making sure that the availability is there so that it's a smoother transition for the buyer to get the products on the shelf. It, it is A lot of it is through three tier. Now, then you can look at things like the non-premise, you might call it, which could be, you know, retail stores. It could be clothing. It could be cruise ships. It could be, you know, hospitality. Some of these other spots clearly where you may not even have serving spirits available at all. Well, that's another way that you could either go directly or go through different types of distribution because, Maybe you do want to have a bottle of Ritual next to a pair of Lulu leggings. I don't know, right? Why not? It's the same consumer. So I think that that's where I'm excited to see. And I, this is probably an area of, that's of most interest to me. You know, first, let's get it in the spots where consumers are thinking about it and buying. And then, then let's get it in these surprising places where consumers are already shopping for other lifestyle and wellness products. Put it there. You know, maybe it's in a maternity store, right? Who, you know, who knows? They're, they're, the world is sort of endless when you start to think about all the places that people, you know, maybe you're going to an event and you want to bring something for the hostess. So you want to grab something at Williams Sonoma. I don't know. There's all of these places. So I think it's fascinating on the commercial strategy, how expansive it can be. And then, of course, the trade is still the gatekeeper. You know, bartenders are still a gatekeeper to educate and getting this on menus so that it's just available. I'm still shocked at the number of menus that I look at. You're in New York, so you're seeing, right, a lot more, but across, it's still, I, my mind is blown about how uh, how little availability or menu placements there still is for non-ALK. It's a huge, huge opportunity space. I just want to jump in. You mentioned, you know, maternity wards and places. Are you seeing differences in the way that men and women consume this? You know, when you speak about wellness, I, I typically think of a female audience, but where where are the male audience in this? Look, absolutely still prevalent. And I think it's most of what we see is, again, you know, I have a big meeting tomorrow. I'm training for an event. Um, tonight, I'm taking care of the kids. So mm -hmm. I would say that's not gender specific. That is very much around like, you know, performance, lifestyle, you've just got stuff to do, right? And you need to be able to fish. So that's that's gender agnostic. That's going across the board. Um, and I do think you're right. It's, you know, I, most of the data we have is non-ALK is a little more like 60, 65% female. And I think it is because it just really touches in that kind of wellness lifestyle sphere across the board. So let's move a little bit into... Um 
talking about the spirits in, industry in general. So, you know, in interviews, uh, you've described what a shock it was to move into this particular industry, which is, you know, very male dominated. What were some of the biggest surprises? You're right that I almost didn't really acknowledge or expect it because coming from more traditional CPG, food, beverage, it, it, it is pretty split 50-50 or even maybe a bit more female leaning when you're looking across a room in an audience, right, of a working environment. And also you've got the combination that it, it's not only spirits, but finance and venture. So you kind of like keep going down the funnel of it is a much more male dominated across all of those. Look, I think it, to me, it, there's an awareness around that, but really it's, look, it, this is, again, we're leading with the consumer. Everyone wants to be able to service the consumer. And as soon as you start putting dollars in front of people about opportunity, like it's it's amazing. You know, if, if we're sitting here saying one in seven drinks served at a bar will be a non-out cocktail, and that's incremental dollars, look at how much, that is fantastic. So that just, that doesn't really, but again, it's this, this education piece. And I think the switching of mindset out of kind of traditional spirits, that's a little slower going. Um, Again, I think it's, you know, remove the, the people at the table, the gender specificity, but really let's talk about how this is developing and how this can really support everyone's businesses. I think that's, what's really interesting. Look, I will say one thing that's been fantastic is just the level of allyship that men do show up with around, you know, educating colleagues and whether it's men of color or it almost doesn't matter. But there is some there's a lot of great people out there that are wanting to move the dial, too. And we also still see, you know, you probably saw some of the results of a recent study like around the women in whiskey industry. It's still really hard. There is a lot to be done there. Uh, what I feel really good about is that I can be in a space to have that awareness and try to start to lead some of those initiatives to turn that dial and help bring women into these spaces to make it less intimidating and how can we connect the dots together. You've talked about making uh, women and minorities a priority. Can you talk about why it's so important, not just to you, but to the market to bring more people into this space? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, it's we all connect better with founders and brands where we can see ourselves in them, right? It only makes sense. So if the, if the base of the consumer is more female and like we need to ha- also have founders and people working in this space that can relate to those consumers. So, I mean, I think that's, that's really the answer right there is to just make sure that the folks that are behind the scenes making the products and out advocating being present with the consumers can also be part of those consumer groups themselves. Okay, so let's talk about trends. Um, as you go bar hopping and uh, doing your market research, what are the trends that you're seeing at the moment? Hmm, that's a good one. So I think if we, again, I mean, kind of sticking in the space of the conversation that we're focused on, we've talked about prioritization of health and wellness, right? That's huge. Brands are really adding value when they're embracing this occasionality across the board. So, and I think also the positioning of from without to with, like when non-out started, it was really like the removal of things. Now it's kind of this this with. So whether that is more in functional and well-being that's connected to occasions, or if it's lifestyle-driven, connected a bit more to inner and outer wellness, I think there is definitely some spots we're seeing in more functional type of brands, right? So that's one. I think another big trend is around inclusivity. And by that, what I mean is Look, we talked about the number one reason that people are coming to is flavor. The second one is like, I want to enjoy this moment with my friends, my colleagues, my partners, whatever it may be. So brands that are connecting those dots and also the hospitality industry, like we are in hospitality here to serve people who are coming into our places, our homes, our whatever, our bars to have something available so that folks can be included across the board. That's huge. So I think brands that are connecting that inclusivity. Absolutely great. And just kind of this connection of cultural moments, food culture we talked about. I think that's another big trend I'm seeing. Another one that we touched on a little bit, but just curiosity of flavor and sort of spirits decoding a bit, Um, you know, whether that means leaning on spirits foundation of product provenance. We talked about 
you know, ways products are made, fermentation, distillation, aging. I think those are early bubbles of stuff, but I think that that will start to come out more. Um, provenance, you know, influencing the richness of storytelling more from founders. Um, and then, yeah, again, I've said it at the beginning, but it just comes back to, again, this diversification led by occasion. So whether that's category expansion, whether that's convenience, whether it's time of day, um, whether it's inspired by you know, aperitifs, golden hour. I think the other trend is that there's kind of this blurring of no and low a bit more than I saw previously. And I think that's where, you know, a lot of the work we were doing at DV early days was really squarely like category growth, non-alc, but now expanding that into consumer occasionality. And it's really across no and low that there's quite a lot of development there. You know, that's really interesting. I mean, I uh, I wonder as, you know, as the CEO of Distill Ventures, you know, when you're looking at the path in the future, like what kind of are you plotting out? So, you know, does no and low uh, look like, you know, let's say a 20% of the portfolio or how do you start to balance that out and gauge what is the opportunity for no and low relative to the greater alcohol landscape? For folks who don't know, uh, DV is also very deeply involved globally in whiskey. So that's our, you know, that's our number one area. Non-elk is number two in our portfolio. And I don't see that I don't see that changing. And again, but that broadening of no and low moderation, occasionality, I think it's this this generational shift of consumers' drinking habits and with that health and wellness sector underpinning it. So that I think is where that, you know, will continue to move. And look, then there's other spaces, you know, we can't we can't ignore tequila and agave. And, you know, I, there's there's a lot of, you know, interesting stuff bubbling up that is also very culture led. So whether that's by, you know, culture, both the consumer and founders, but whether that's what might be happening in rum or other categories depends on what country and globally where you're sitting. Um, and I think an underpinning to all of that is founders with a more diverse background. I mean, we spoke about bringing more women in, but this is across the board. Look, I mean, look at the changing demographic, not only in the U.S. is dramatic, let alone globally. So founders that have a more diverse background coming from underrepresented backgrounds, that's the, that's the face of the landscape with consumers, you know, of where that's going. So I think as much as we talk about product consumer occasion, it's the it's founder makeup too across the board. Well, Heidi, that I think that is a great place for us to end it. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This has been such an interesting conversation. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Really enjoyed speaking with you today. Find out more about millennial and Gen Z audiences. We've surveyed more than 1,300 Gen Zs and millennials and from across the US asking them everything we wanted to know. We worked with a designer. It's very easy to navigate and understand. And it's available through researchandmarkets.com, one of the world's best market research store. The study offers a clear action plan to everyone who works in beverages, from alcohol brands to soft drink companies to regional wine bodies to importers and distributors. It's for anyone who's looking to understand millennial and Gen Z drinking behavior and to sell more effectively to these younger audiences. From what styles people are drinking at which specific occasions to what motivates them to choose and buy what they do. There are plenty of insights to help marketers and producers with their product development, sales and advertising. So, Eric, how do people get hold of it? Well, we've made it very easy. We've got a link to the report in the show notes, or you can go to researchandmarkets.com and search for the name of the report. It's Millennials and Gen Z, a comprehensive study of alcohol and non-alcohol beverage purchase and consumption behavior. If you just type in Millennials and Gen Z, it will pop right up. And if you don't want to buy the report, keep your eyes on the beverage trade media in the coming weeks as we will be doing a lot of media appearances. Yeah, but of course you do want to buy the report, I guarantee. And please note, this is the first of what we are hoping will be many reports. In fact, if you've got a burning question and you want it answered with serious research, send us an email as we can set the research in motion. It's info at businessofdrinks.com.
today on Last Call, an update on our month of no alcohol. Felicity, how was the past month for you? Any new insights? Yes, I've, I've done no out before, and this was the first time that I actually lost weight as a result of doing it. So uh, that was good. And the biggest change when I stopped drinking alcohol is sleep. So like a lot of people, I have a you know, I, I have trackers that track how much I'm sleeping. And I can really see that on days, uh, you know, when I've, I've not been drinking alcohol, I get far more sleep, I get deeper sleep, and I'm much more effective the next day. Erica, what about you? Yeah, my experience was pretty similar. I have one of those sleep number beds that tracks your movements and breath rates. A sleep number bed? Tell me what a sleep <laughs> number bed is. I don't know about this. Well, so my husband on one side, he, so out of 100, and 100 is like the most firm bed. He likes a 70. I like a 30. So I like a really soft bed, but it's like maybe it's sort of a little bit weird and creepy, but like it also tracks your breath. It tracks your heart rate. <laughs> no, not really. So I, I would definitely say now going forward, I see that I will for sure be drinking fewer days of the week. Um, my, my mental health is definitely better when I'm not having a glass or two uh, of wine with dinner or a cocktail in the evening. So like noted, I have fully noted this. And, you know, I, I mean, I don't think it's the placebo effect. I, I really do think that this is what's happening. But I will say that the thing that I missed most was wine. So, so I think most of these recipe-based wine alternatives that are adding ingredients to make a wine-like product, right? They're doing a good job of that type of product. But what they can't recreate yet, at least, is all the romantic stuff that brought me to wine, which is, you know, the journey of the vine in its terroir, the farmer working the specific conditions of a certain site and vineyard, the magic of the vineyard, uh, and a specific vintage. So, you know, that's the stuff that gets me excited about wine, which is the whole, like, every bottle is a story aspect of it. And I happen to love biodynamic wines, and there's nothing better to me than visiting a vineyard and its winemaker and talking about their vision and their challenges in a given year and the whole process of creating uh, a product that is the very best it can be with minimal additives or manipulations. And visiting a place has a major appeal for me. And you can't do that with most non-alk products, which brings me to my pick today, which is a bittersweet aperitivo from Wilderton. And Wilderton is the first non-alcoholic distillery with a distillery that you can visit and a tasting room, first one in the country. And you can visit them on the waterfront in beautiful Hood River, Oregon, uh, way out west. And from the photos, the distillery looks pretty darn cool. So they make a range of products, including riffs on gin and whiskey, but all with sort of a Pacific Northwest twist. And for this particular product, uh, the bittersweet aperitivo, it really looks a lot like Campari, has much of the same uh, flavor profile with grapefruit, orange blossom, lots of herbs, and it's very delicious made in a classic bicicleta, which I have been making. You know, you can do it you can do it americano, you can do it in a variety of different drinks, but I've been drinking 3 it's like my sort of recipe if you want to make it at home is 3 ounces of a non-alcoholic white wine and then 2 ounces of the aperitivo and then just top it with club soda over ice with an orange wheel. And I have to say like that really hits the spot at the end of the day in a very similar, if not totally the same way as an alcoholic version of that drink. So Felicity, what have you been drinking? Well, coincidentally, it just so happens that without any consultation with you, I also chose a product in the vein of an Italian non-alcoholic aperitif uh, that's made in the mold of something like Aperol. It's called Crodino and it's bright orange. It comes in tiny bottles and it's apparently made by extracting botanicals and fusing them for six months and then carbonating the liquid. Now, I say apparently because the recipe is a secret, uh, although people have already worked out that there must be spices like cloves, coriander, nutmeg in it. Now, I find this interesting for a couple of reasons. Uh, when I read up on it, one was that it was created in 1964 to meet a demand at the time for non-alcoholic alternatives and it's becoming popular again for the same reason. So, when I have time Time, which will be never, but I'd like to look at this non-alcoholic moment in Italy, which sounds very much like what we're going through at the moment. And I'd like to know how that sort of panned out. 
Unlike most of the no-alcohol alternatives I've tried lately, this one is a really good substitute for alcohol rather than being a different type of drink altogether. So I have to give you the background. I live in Germany and I live in a country town. I don't live in Berlin. I don't live in Munich. So I've found it extremely hard to find non-alcohol alternatives which are not pretty horrible and pretty primitive. So I've been immensely jealous of all of the things that you've been trying, Erica. Um, and, and I've been, you know, I've ordered lots of non-alcoholic wines and most of them are just sweet and lacking in flavour and, uh, you know, very, very difficult for a wine lover to drink. Um, but anyway, like, so, so like I said, the, the bitterness of this one, which is what Derek Brown would call piquancy, means that this has got some of the bite that you need. Um, anyway, so I was standing in my kitchen and I was making my friends try all the non-alcoholic wines I've got and they are not wine experts and they vehemently and universally rejected all the wines. Now, it was interesting because I, I didn't mind some of them. I, I particularly, uh, there was a, a non a de-alcoholized Grenache from France, which I actually quite liked it. It had black currant flavors and had a bit of tannin. I, I thought it was quite good. But my my friends loathed the non-alcoholic products. For them, you know, it, it's either drink wine or, or don't bother. So we're standing there. I was, I was opening all this non-alcoholic sparkling wine and it was all being poured down the sink. So I poured some of the Credino into the non-alcoholic sparkling wine that they were busy hating on. And they all agreed that it was a good substitute for Prosecco Aperol. Suddenly they, they all perked up. They didn't pour it away. They drank it. So this is one non-alcoholic product that I think I might actually buy again and, you know, do stuff in my kitchen with. Um, but the, the trick here is to understand that, as is often the case with non-alcoholic products, the level of sugar is off the charts, but it's it's hidden by the bitterness, so it's easy to miss just how much sugar is in the product. Yeah, and, and that is, that is for me, a real concern about some non-alcoholic products is, is how much they substitute alcohol with sugar. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I think that's exactly it, that thinking about these very herbal sort of bitter products that also have a good amount of sweetness to it, that very successfully, that sort of category of drink very successfully mimics like the Camparis or the full alcoholic strength sort of versions of those types of products. It's really that bitterness and the sugar that kind of makes up uh, and provides like a certain type of body and like viscosity that is really hard to distinguish from the alcoholic version. So I think that's why those types of products are very successful. And it, it doesn't surprise me that we both um, chose something in that category because I think these are among the most successful yeah. ones, really. So awesome. Well, I think, you know, we have come to the end of our month of non-alc. Does this mean we can go back to drinking wine, Erica? Yes, yes. What is, what's the, what's the first thing that you're going to drink? Any, any thoughts? Germany makes excellent sparkling wines. There's one called Reichsreit von Bull, which is a local winery. They make a wonderful sparkling rosé, which is only about 19 euros, but but tastes like it should be 30 euros. So that's going to be my first drink. What about you? Yeah, I've been holding out for my first Manhattan of the season. So as soon as the temperature drops, as soon as the leaves start to change, I start drinking Manhattans. And I can't tell you how much I'm looking forward to a real full-strength Manhattan. Um, I probably will have one this evening. Uh, so, so cheers to that. Enjoy your wine. I will clink you from afar. Will do. Thank you for joining us today on the Business of Drinks. Follow us on Apple and Spotify or wherever you're listening and tap that notification button so you'll be the first to know when a new episode drops. Also, please help us spread the word. Tap those star ratings and share on social. It truly helps us get noticed. And if there's something that you would like us to cover on the podcast, tell us. We're at podcast at businessofdrinks.com or contact us on LinkedIn. We want to hear from you and we really do respond to messages. See you soon.